Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. Now, I took you through part one, which means the great, the wonderful, the only, the handsome, the muscular, the brilliant nubs. None of that's true. Is going to take you through disc two, part two of the great double disc epic Fleetwood Mac Tusk. Take it away, Nubs. Here's part two of Tusk. Yeah, on. Elvis impression. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounded more like Scott Staff to me. <laughs> Terrible Elvis impression. You know why I have Elvis on the brain? Do you know why? So- sounded like either Scott Stapp or that you uh, maybe needed a laxative. <laughs> so bad. I kind of admire people who have legit Elvis impressions that can do it right. Do you, do you know why I have Elvis on the brain? Uh... Why do most people right now have Elvis on the brain? Because he was amazing. Well, yeah. Because uh, he was fat. Well, eventually he was. And sweaty. What did chicks used to throw? Did they throw? Wait, wait, wait. no. This is a, this is a good test of your pop culture did knowledge. They, did do they you throw? Well, wait. Did they throw brasiers on stage and he would wipe his face with them and throw them back, or was it? Was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like all, handkerchiefs or something. All sorts of undergarments. And then he would wipe his sweat with his own scarf and then hand it to the girls. But and then let's throw go it to the girls. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's exactly what they wanted, right? The big sweaty scarf. I, know, look, maybe they I, I mean, look at the clips. They weren't too mad about it. Yeah, but it's true. Go back. Do you, like for real, do you know why people have Elvis on the brain right now? Um, no. Are, are you, you're being serious. Uh, Yeah. Okay, I the number one, two, or three movie right now is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie. Do you? I I, I, I didn't even know there was. This is incredible movie. to me. That's what I'm saying right now. So you you really have no knowledge of this movie, like z- like zero. This is like a thing going on right now. I we are in such an interesting media age that you have no knowledge of this movie. Zero. Okay, so last night I went and saw it in the theater. Okay. Called Elvis. It's Baz Luhrmann, who is sort of the Oliver Stone of our generation, of mm-hmm. today's generation. I would say not, not our generation. Our generation's Oliver Stone is Oliver Stone. But he's today's Oliver Stone. His filmmaking is heavily inspired. Okay. And he did Moulin Rouge, Chicago, I think, like really, really good filmmaker. And he's he made this incredible biopic about Elvis. It just came out you know, in the last few, like weeks. a documentary or like a, no, like a movie. No, it's a movie. Tom oh. Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker. Oh, he's amazing. Who, play, who plays the king of rock and roll? He's this guy. I'd never heard of him before. Austin okay. something. Austin. So it's like almost like the queen thing where the like kind of no name guy played Freddie Mercury kind of thing. Yes. It's like the queen movie, but good. Okay. And yeah, the, yeah, the queen movie is kind of stupid. It was bad. It was terrible. <laughs> it was people like loved it. I was like, why? Yeah, so it was, it was so weird. Yeah. Um, this movie is 
powerful. It's, it's really, really, really exceptional. Wow. And when saw it last night, I basically spent the last 24 hours just in a full Elvis rabbit hole. Oh, nice. Interviews, performances. I just got, um, there was like a little CD box set that came out a couple of weeks ago of a, kind of a run of performances in Vegas at the International Hotel. Yeah. The um, movie is very centered around the, mm-hmm. the International Hotel run. Yeah. Yeah. And they had like the dinner show and then the late night show. And I mean, it's those are always great listens, you know. He was really incredible. It, you know, he was such an out of this world performer. Yeah. How he did that for as long as he did, like you said, maybe two nights. Yeah. You know, well, part of it is he had a, a an exceptional band. Yes. I mean, his band was amazing. It was yep. so good. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, it, the movie captures that he, he was so unique. He seemed to never lose that adrenaline rush that you get when you perform no matter how many times you do it. Like I said, not two nights, I said two nights, two times a night for many years in the same venue. And you would still think that every time you did it was the first time. And obviously near the end, things get pretty bad. You know, he gets, I mean, what, what, what is the, at at least the Hollywood, you never know what's true and what's not, especially if he's an Oliver Stone type dude. Right. But what kind of got Elvis on drugs? Was it like, the sort of need for a rush because performing kind of got old or something or like what, how does the movie portray his drug use? The movie portrays it that he had exhaustion from just the reckless schedule that Colonel Tom Parker had him on. Yeah. And got addicted to these, you know, painkillers and things like that as a part of his treatment for exhaustion. You know, this was night this was the 70s. This was before kind of opioids and things like that were at the forefront of our knowledge yeah. and how addicting these things were. People thought drugs, they thought, you know, cocaine, heroin and weed. But no one knew just how addicting these things were. And so, did he do cocaine and heroin or did he just do pills and stuff? No, if he did, the movie doesn't portray really? that. It's all okay. pills. Okay. And every documentary or or, you know, movie that I've seen about him, it's all pills it was painkillers and different narcotics okay and so then he became really addicted to these and those obviously transform you physically emotionally mentally and so you know that's when i mean he was a very charming sweet humble guy but by the last few years it's obvious that you know the the addiction just made him a kind of a different person more of a temper more volatile on stage he would have these outbursts and these rambles and yeah you know, yeah. I mean, but the last few years are pretty dark. The movie does not spend a lot of time on the last few years. Does he die on the toilet in the movie? No, no, he does they don't not. Show, Cause like in the doors, they actually like showed like Jim in the bathtub, you know, yeah. where he died. He did in uh, Paris, but they, so they don't actually have the toilet. Did he die in the toilet or is that like a, one of those like, no, I think he, roll, I, I think folk, he did folk tales. Oh, I did. think he did. But you know what? And not to sound overly, uh, you know, dramatic about it, but by the end of the movie, it's very emotional. I mean, you're, you, you get very connected to him as a character, as a star that the movie is, is just so well done. It, it, it bounces around. It's got lots of flashbacks and lots of interludes. I recommend it. You would love it. I, within five minutes, I was like, Oh, T would love this movie. It's oh, nice. I'll watch it. Yeah. I actually, uh, I was on an airplane this last week. We took the kids to Disney. 
for the first time. Boy, there is no fatigue. Like the fatigue you feel at the end of a day yeah. at Disneyland. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, like, oh my God. Uh, but anyway, on the airplane, I watched this uh, Brian Wilson documentary that I think is relatively new, which was interesting. And I know you just recently saw him. Yeah. I, I mean, based on what I saw in the documentary, he, he couldn't have sounded good when you saw him a couple weeks ago, right? I mean, I don't think he did anything. I, he's saying, like I said in a previous episode, he's saying like two verses of God only knows. He's saying one of the verses in good vibrations. I don't think he touched his piano. Oh, so he didn't sing the whole time. Okay. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. No. They had so it's just a he's a showpiece, really, in the yes. plays. Was Al Jardine there? He's always there. Al Jardine was there and Blondie <laughs> Chaplin was there. Al Jardine's just he's always there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's totally. like like Mike Love, they hate him and and fans hate him and and you know, uh the rest of them are dead and Al Jardine's just always he was there like <laughs> Like the first ever clip you saw when they were all like 14 and playing yeah. beach songs, he was there. And then like last week, like when you saw him, Brian Wilson, Al Jardine's there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. And he yeah. still looks the same too, as he did yeah. when he was like, like 14, you know, I'm an enormous Carl Wilson guy, right? He was yeah. my, my yeah. guy, my beach boy guy, you know, not and Dennis. I like Dennis. You know, Den I mean, Dennis was cool. Dennis was actually a really good drummer. Um, he was a great drummer and his solo it, album is fantastic. Well, they spent a lot of time talking about that. What is it called? Ocean something. Yes. Um, Ocean very, blue, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Some very yeah. California -y album title that, that has become sort of a gem, like a lost gem of the late, late seventies. I think it was when he recorded yeah. that solo record. And if you listen to it, it's, it's pretty good. You realize how it maybe in some ways was a little ahead of its time in terms of mood and atmosphere and those type of things. But, um, he was a good drummer too. And boy, what a wild man. He he was just like kind oh, of a, baby. He was just an animal. And and all this stuff like with the chicks. Like, yeah. All the chicks. And he used to like roll with like Charles Manson and stuff. And like uh, he was he was yes. Guy was crazy, man. Dated <laughs> crazy. Uh, dated Christine McVie. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. he sure did. Yeah. Weren't they weren't they engaged? Yeah, I think it's more than dated. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He died in a pool, didn't he? He's drowned in like the yeah, backyard, so. somebody's yeah. pool. Oh no, no, yeah. actually, he was in in the ocean. He he got like all. I mean, he was a he had an enormous drinking problem, and I think drugs too. And didn't he like he got in a fight with his like ex wife previously, and like he got so mad at her, he like threw all of her belongings into the ocean, and then like a couple of years later, he got all like messed up and like took a boat out there and jumped in looking for her stuff. <laughs> oh, is that died. what happened? Really? Yeah. Wow. Something, something crazy. That's how, that's how it went down. Wow. Yeah. It was something crazy like that. I think, it, you know, uh, Carl, the, I mean, part of the reason I like him is because he was sort of the most normal out of all those guys, you know, he was just very yeah. like level-headed, very cool, you know, just flew under the radar. He never had any like major problems. Like, he died of cancer. I mean, cigarettes may have been his thing, but uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the boy, what a weird, what a weird group i mean it's yeah. i mean they're they're amazing but like their output was just so scattered and the sort of like mike love version of the like summertime like commercial john stamos beach boys and then brian's this like genius i mean it's a I don't know, we should talk about those guys at some point we haven't we haven't done anything on them have we we have not done a beach boys album we should yeah you know what else i watched this is incredibly off topic but um, I got on this next Netflix role um, last night and 
do you remember that whole thing with um, Manti Teo, the Notre Dame football player? Yeah, of where course. You, yeah, yeah, where he got catfished in the, the yeah, because a, we played uh, Ohio State played um, Notre Dame in the bowl game the year that all went down, if I remember right. Well, they the year it all went down, they played in the national championship. Oh no, remember? that's right. Okay, and so they got smoked by Alabama. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, you're right. There were, it was you the year before them. after we played. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah. They, they did <laughs> oh, and all the Buckeye fans were just like, like just crucifying Manti Teo, well, for, you know, for being such an idiot. He was so annoying. Anyway, he really was. Like, you get an idea from this. Like, even if the Cavish thing never happened to him, he was just really annoying. He was just, just like. You know, he just yes. was a little, he was a little too into Manti. Manti Teo was a little too into Manti Teo, right? And um, it takes you through the whole thing. And my God, I mean, they, they this is, it's called Untold on Netflix. And boy, they take you through it and it brought back a lot of memories. It was like 10 years ago, the whole thing happened, but you forget how big of a deal that was. And then tonight I'm going to watch the next episode, which is Malice at the Palace, something that, uh, that also hits home. Funny you mentioned that because I, it, uh, last week or the week before, out of nowhere, I just was like, you know what? I want to watch the broadcast of the mouse in the palace again. Yeah, yeah. I think the connection. Oh, I know. I remember what it was. I was watching some old Ohio State Michigan games. Uh-huh. I was watching the 2004 game, which was the day after. Yeah, we, we, were, we, we, were Columbus. Columbus. Yep, we were in Columbus. We were. We were in Columbus. We were actually fixing to go out. We were right about to go to the bar. I think we were doing a little priming at the we hotel were. with we a bunch were. of dudes. And I remember that, you know, cause we had a bunch of Detroit kids with us and, and you know, people were like just watching the Pistons game. It was like a regular season, stupid game. Right. And, um, and then this happened. And I remember we all like stayed at the hotel for an extra, like two hours just cause you know, we, we just couldn't believe, I mean that, that hit home for a bunch of us. Cause obviously a lot of Pistons fans in that group, but yeah, I remember we were in Ohio, but yeah, that's the next episode of this, uh, this series called untold. So I'm going to watch that one tonight, but yeah, that was kind of a, that was kind of a fun watch last night. Are you watching hard knocks with the Detroit lions? So did it start yet? Yeah. It started last week. Okay. I'm definitely going to watch that. Cause I think that your new coach is just, the Oh um, dude, he's the best. Yeah. Is he he's great the on the best. show? Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's so good. Yeah. He's yeah. so good. Definitely, so definitely. I haven't watched hard knocks in years. I mean, the, the chiefs were on it. Like, 10 years ago during like the Herm days. And yes. so, you know, yeah. and I'm a Chiefs fan, so I don't really, whatever. I don't really care about that, but the lions one, I'm definitely watching. Yeah. Watch it for sure. I think you'll like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think you will like it. So, so let's see Elvis dies in 1977. So we're, we're really just two years off of that. As we get back into Fleetwood Max Tusk, going to look at LP two from the double album. But before we do any of that T, I need to know, I need to know. I really need to know what you've been listening to. So let's take the show round and round. Three albums that you've been spinning around. T, what do you got? Were you doing a little, uh, what was that? I need to know. I need to know. Who does that song? Uh, Oh, Tom Petty. Were you doing Tom Petty there? Or what was that? No, I don't know what it was. It just, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Okay. Well, you, no yeah. reference, no reference. Okay. Well, to, to me, or doing a little Tom Petty jam. A uh, couple new releases lately. Uh, Silver Sun Pickups put out uh, Physical Thrills uh, just uh, yesterday, actually, as we record this. And it's pretty good. It's not as uh, ear catching, if you will, as their previous few records have been. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe it'll. 
get better. It's an interesting concept. It's 14 tracks and there are these musical segues. So it's, it's kind of neat the way it's strung together. Uh, I'm going to go see them uh, later this fall and still haven't. I it was one of those bands I was going to see and then it got canceled because of the uh, pandemic and everything. So I'm uh, going to check that out. The next is um, uh, called Chaos and Bloom. And this is by the Goo Goo Dolls. And, uh, you know, they've gone a bit festival rock, but man, I just, I just like them. Well, you know what? I, I kind of, even when they put out something kind of crappy, I, I don't know. I just, I'm a little partial to them. I, you know, we saw them at such an interesting time. It was 1992, if I'm not mistaken, or 93, maybe at Hill it was Superstar Car Wash. So what that came out in 92, it was probably 93 because yeah. Soul Asylum was touring Grave Dancers, Union Grave Dancers. Yeah. Which yeah, was, that so was, nice. I think 93. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So, and it was Vic Chastain actually opened and, and, you know, and we were kind of like, he sucks. And then the Cougar Dolls came out and like, after Vic Chestnut just bored the crap out of everybody, at least us at age 13, um, the Goo Goo Dolls came out and this was like, they were just this like punk band from Buffalo. Right. But they played a couple of songs off Superstar Car Wash, including Falling Down and We Are the Normal. Great song co-written by Paul Westerberg. And I remember being like, okay. If these guys go in that direction, those couple tracks we heard them play live, like they're going to be enormous because they just they had the look and they had the sound and they were cool. And and then a couple of years later, Name comes out and Iris comes out and whatever. They just blew up. Right. So. um, So I don't know. I've always kind of felt like I just like the band and. I kind of always root for them. I don't know. But so it's a little festival rocky and they're sort of trying to keep up with the times, but it's not bad. It's not bad. There's you know, there's some decent stuff on there. And then something that's um, not as much of a new re- release, but from one of my favorite bands that does have a new release coming out in a few weeks. And that is Machine Head, the great uh, groove metal outfit and uh, their record uh, Unto the Locust, which they have a terrific catalog. You can sort of pick any of it. Um, and it's consistent, but you know, obviously this band's been around for a long time and each record brings a little bit of sort of a different flavor, but it's always still them, you know, and still doing what they do and, you know, great band. I know a band that you like as well. So that is what has been uh, round and round for me. Buckaroo, how about you? Nice choices as always. I continue to stock up on 50 cent CDs. <laughs> I just can't stop. It's such an I thought you were about to say you've been listening to 50 cent. Yeah. To 50 cent. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. he's okay, <laughs> yeah. I guess. So. Right. So a, a couple things out of that collection. Again, it's mostly late 90s, early 2000s hard rock stuff. The first is an album, Pretend I'm Human. This is by Orange 9 Millimeter, 1999. Really good album. Starts yes. off with uh, When You Lie, which is just this yes. like, super abrasive rocker that just opens it with a bang. I went through this funny phase like sometime in high school where... I was listening to a lot of Orange Nine Millimeter and Biohazard. You know, they were yeah. like two, they yeah. were like two of my like go to listens for a long time. Yeah, that's a good one. Orange Nine, I was able to find that the original CD release where it has the orange jewel case. I just thought yeah. that was really cool. Second is a little more obscure, Course of Nature, which is a band that kind of had a little cup of coffee in the charts in the early 2000s. They had a song called Caught in the Sun that was should have been a gigantic hit, wasn't? And their second album called Damaged. Want a copy of that, and it's very, very good. Now, all these bands seem to be in that. They're either like new metal, Creedish, Nickelback-ish sort of deal, and 
Curse of Nature was like that, but a lot of really good bands from that era. They're one of them. Third is not one that I bought on 50 Cent CD, but I did find a vinyl copy of the second album from Joy Electric. We are the music makers. And um, those first two Joy Electric albums are really, really good. They, Ronnie Martin was kind of well ahead of his time in terms of what he was doing just from a synthesizer perspective and a pop perspective. And like his brother, Jason Martin, who's the the brainchild of Starflyer 59, Ronnie Martin had a long career. He made tons of albums and really for a good 20 years consistently put out pretty strong output. So great cornerstone music festival memory of, uh, of joy electric, Ronnie, Ronnie Martin just coming out and like playing a few songs in the late night tent, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he was, and he was yeah. so goofy at the time. It was, you're right. It was a bit ahead of its time from an electronica standpoint, but, uh, yeah, he was great. Enjoy he was kind of ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Just his whole appearance, his approach, you know, it, it it took that scene that he was kind of, you know, cornered into by storm and surprise. And he was very unique. I now always, yeah. I agree that I have warm memories of seeing Joy Electric live in a few different settings. So T, as we get into Tusk, the second half of it, I don't know. Can we just talk more about Sisters of the Moon or are we? Or do we have to get past that? <laughs> I, I, I guess I was fortunate enough to get that one on uh, right at the end of part one there. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to cap off that first disc, ain't it? It didn't get me to Team Nicks, as we talked about, but I think, I think you were on your way. <sighs> don't, I, buddy, don't resist it. Just let it happen. Just let it happen. Never. Never leaving Team Christine McVie, ever. And And I think the second record will support that. I think that you would probably say that uh, Stevie doesn't exactly shine on the second half of Tusk like she does in the first half. At least that's my opinion. T, we'll see what you think. But she doesn't have that many opportunities. She only lead sings two songs. So if we, if we did a top five Fleetwood Mac songs, right? if we put together that list, how many songs off of Tusk would make your list? And and if they would make it or even be strongly considered, what, what songs would you say? Uh, think about me. What makes you think you're the one and okay. sisters of the moon are definite possibilities. I mean, yeah. And those are all on disc one, right? Um, yeah. 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 Those three would, would have a definite fighting chance. Yeah. So, How about yeah. you? Sisters of the moon is, is number one. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that last time that that was probably your top choice, which is great. Definitely. Yeah. Think About Me would get consideration over and over. I love. And um, the title track for sure. I think the title track would sneak in there. Huh. I don't know. You want to do a top five? Yeah. Uh, well, Sans Tusk or, or Sans Tusk. Yeah. Sure. Sans Tusk. Yeah. yeah, that'll work. All right. Why don't you kick us off, man? Well, all right. Um, I guess uh, we're going to. Mention one that probably won't be a surprise. So I'll just get out of the way because I spent like an hour talking about it last time, but silver Springs, the best B side ever recorded in the history of music. I would say, uh, Oasis acquiesce is probably a runner up, but, uh, yeah, yeah. True. Silver Springs is an incredible song and, and you know, the studio version is great. The version on the dance is exceptional. And, uh, yeah, that would definitely be, if we're going sans Tusk, silver Springs would be a no brainer for me. What do you got? I'm going to start with Everywhere off yeah. of Tango in the Night. Yeah, that's your McV. That's your McV jam right there. It's 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 such an outstanding song. You know, do you, gotta, do you kind of pretend, do you ever sort of close your eyes and just pretend that she's um, singing that to you? And 
you're, you're sitting in a empty theater, you know, in the sort of middle of the, Better question is, do I ever not do that? It's pretty, you're kind of describing 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. every day. Yeah. And she's just, she's just looking at me, maybe even pointing at you while she, while she sings it. Is that kind of how you, is that the scenario or? A little bit. Yeah. yeah, Standing behind her piano. Yeah. I love the live version of everywhere. Afterwards, she just does a, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, in her charming little British (laughs) accent. Yeah. 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 She's cute. Adorable. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my first one. See what, uh, what's your number two? Well, I'm going to go with go your own way. I think you kind of have to, it's, it's, uh, really just sort of an epic track. Um, the whole way it builds into the first chorus and then it drops back off for the verse. Mick drums it really, really well. Um, I think it's excellent, excellent drumming. And of course, Lindsay just kills it. I mean, that solo is uh, probably one of the 10 best rock guitar solos, I would say. Um, and uh, it's a hell of a song. And boy, do they blow it out live. And it's a beauty. So go your own way off rumors. How about you, buddy? I said in the last episode, I, I still don't know how the hell he plays guitar that way and, yeah. and makes it sing that way. And so precise. I mean, it's such a weird, unconventional way to play. You know, it is. It is. He's, he's an incredible player. He's very unique and fun to watch, man. It's hard not to go with go your own way. I, I'm going to go next with secondhand news. Okay. It's a really underrated opener. Off good, of you, good Euchre reference there going next, by the way. That's yeah. You like that? You like that? <laughs> I think secondhand news is really cool. I, I like, you know, the way it kind of just comes in. I think the bow to bow to bow to bow bow thing is it's cool. I would normally wouldn't like something like that, but for some reason it works. I think they're all kind of showing off their musicality during that. It's just, it's a cool Lindsay song. I like it a lot. So that's my, that's my second one. T what is your uh, numero trace? Numero trace for me is hold me. Yeah. Hold me. You've always liked that. I find that song very annoying. I love that. song. it's a great song. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. I just, I've always been annoyed by that song. What's wrong with you? There's that, and there's another hit that you might mention. I'm not going to say it now. That I've always found very annoying. That I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if it makes your list. Well, oh, you're, are you going to wait and see if I yeah. go with two songs that annoy you? In my top <laughs> you're five? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I yeah, I, I hold me, you know, off Mirage, which uh, which was pretty good. If you go back to that, there's yeah, Mirage is a, good. That's a pretty good record. Um, so I'm going with that one and, uh, that's my third choice. Uh, what do you got, buddy? Next, I'm going to go with you make loving fun. Hmm. I love the Rhodes piano. So good. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but that should not make a Fleetwood Mac top five. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You can do better than that. Oh, I love the chorus. Yeah, it's good. I mean, he, he, I mean, it's it's just it's such a great composition. It's good. It's great. What don't, what don't you like about it? I, I I I love the song. It's just it, that's not a top five. I mean, mm, I see, I I think part of, part of my issue is that we might have touched on this last episode. I can't stand. Well, you know, I'm going to wait. <laughs> so I want to see if you name some of these other songs. I'm real clearly a very picky about my Fleetwood Mac. All right, T, that's my third. So what is your number four? 
Number four for me, buddy, is also off Mirage. It's the opening track. Nice McV jam for you, just for you, buddy. It's called Love in Store. And uh, it's a great, great one. song. That, that's yeah. an excellent pick. That is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, two off, two off Mirage. Hold Me and Love in Store. Both McV songs. She really kicked ass on that album. What's your fourth choice? So, just to keep the credibility of the of the game going, uh, I am going to go with Go Your Own Way as well. It's impossible not to. It is. It, it's know? hard to not include that. Yeah. it's That's another one, too, that they pulled off live really, really well. And you mentioned it, the guitar solo that kind of blisters at the end. But the version and the dance mix drum sound is so good. You know, it, it's yeah. just cuts through so well. And they're just really locked in. I just, I love that song. So yeah. that's my number four. IT, you got one more to go. What is your final one? Your number five. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Really? Tell me lies. Tell me, tell me lies. Oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. So good. So good. Off of uh, Tango in the Night, I believe. And uh, yeah, that's good 80s. That's good 80s Fleetwood Mac right there. Great album, Tango in the Night. That had Big Love, Seven Wonders, uh, the aforementioned Everywhere. That was that was a pretty damn good record. It's a very good album. I I never been a big fan of Little Lies. I don't. I, it has something to do with my childhood and hearing that song. I don't know what it is. I didn't like it as a kid, and it never has clicked since. I don't, I, and I don't know why. Generally, anything that takes us back to our childhood is not necessarily. A good <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So before I give my five, here's what I want to point out. Here are some songs that would make most people's top five okay. that I actually think kind of suck. All right. Are you ready for this? This is the point of the show where we get really controversial. Okay. Okay. Can, can I guess a couple of them? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I know you don't like dreams. Dreams is so overrated. Yeah. Okay. It's really boring. It's really, really boring. I think you like Rhiannon. and I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to say that. In fact, that probably probably came somewhat close to making your top five or am I way off on this one? I think Rhiannon's good. Okay. It did not come close to my top five. I think it's good. Okay. Uh, so land landslide. You probably don't like, I can't stand landslide. Yeah. I, it's, it's just so over everything. It, <laughs> it's just overdone in every single way. It's importance is overdone. It's been covered way too many times. Yeah. It landslide drives me nuts. Uh, the chain. Do you like the chains? My number five. Oh, I is. love the chain. Ah, okay. I just yeah. adore I that okay. song. Yeah. It's yeah. like the perfect song. It's got that atmospheric intro. Yeah. And when they all, when they all come in, meaning the three of them who sing, they come in together with this perfect harmony. Listen to the wind blow. That is a goosebump moment every time I hear it. It's just, yeah. there's something about the atmosphere of it. Yeah. I, I I just, I think it's one of those perfect songs. I yeah, that's a good call. It is good. It is good. Um, Why didn't they open rumors with that though? It's a great question. It's a great question. They really shut up. Because like secondhand news is a great side two opener and the chain is a perfect album opener and they like got those two mixed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really strange. I mean, what they did get right, especially on the dance tour, was they opened with the chain, which right. you, you have to, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a great call. It's a great call. So the only other song that really was close uh -huh. was Big Love, which 
is one of my favorite Lindsay songs. The dance version, I think I mentioned this last time, when he plays that solo acoustic is insane. Yeah, it's it's just out of this world. Uh, so that was close. That was kind of right outside the five. But the, the, the song I was referencing earlier that annoys me is Say You Love Me. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe that was going to be on your list. No. No. Okay, yeah. No, I'm with you. I don't like that one too much. Gold Dust Woman is really good. Gold that Dust was, Woman's very good. That was yeah. close. That was close. Um, Seven Wonders I like. It's not top five worthy, but it's good. You know, good. Another good Tango in the Night track. Yeah. Um, Do you like uh, Gypsy? Yeah. See, I can't stand Gypsy. That that to me is yeah. like when Nick's songs go back. Really? Yeah. I think it's cool. I think Gypsy's really cool. But you're on Team Stevie. Well, yeah. You know, it might be a factor. Yeah. I, I am I am not unbiased on these these topics. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, no. we got 10 songs to go through. Are you ready to throw LP2 of Tusk onto the turntable? I think so, buddy. Ready if you are. Let's do it. T let's drop the needle on side three of Tusk. Let's do it. All right, Sisters of the Moon has come to its dramatic close. My jaw is on the floor. And side three kicks off with a little Stevie Nicks ditty called Angel. a cute song yeah sort of a wonderful choice to open up this new record right because they could have gone a lot of different directions with it could have started more dramatically but they ended you know side two in a really dramatic way so they just kind of started off with a little keyboard ditty you know and and i think it's a really adorable song i do yeah i I like it too I, i mean i think uh I think that, you know, it's kind of nice when Stevie gets a little bouncy and dare I say it has fun with her songs because it didn't happen very often. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I think, yeah, you've got Sisters of the Moon is is pretty intense. Um, and this is a really nice kind of way to take you through side two, because, you know, you're you're on a pretty you're on a marathon at this point. Right. This is not, you know, this is not a new album. This is, you know, the second act. And I think it starts it off in a very light, bouncy way that I wish Stevie did a little bit more often. You know, part of why I like her solo stuff is, you know, I like when she was poppy and upbeat, a little dancey. And I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, I think Angel hits that pretty nicely. Well said all around. All right. Lindsay steps right back into the fold as this album just seems to be either a Lindsay home demo turned into an album song or the band doing their thing in the studio. Here comes Lindsay back again with more fun and excitement with that's enough for me. Same playbook as side one where it starts off with a more of a Fleetwood Mac sound. And then I just, I don't know where here comes Lindsay with his, with his 
home bullshit. (laughs) Just like the ledge, this one just sees him rollicking along. Clearly he's playing drums again, right? We talked about that in the first episode that he took over the drum kit for most of his songs that he had full control over. And it's just a little bit more of his little ode to punk, isn't it? Yeah. He's just, he's so weird on this album, you know, it's, it's cool. And it's definitely uh, rebellious, you know, and it's anti-commercial and it's cool. Um, Apparently he kind of screwed around in the studio a lot. I mean, obviously this song has a lot of clipping elements to it where the mix is so, you know, high up and so hot that you actually hear distortion. It was probably intentional. Um, Like you mentioned, when we did a couple of those tracks on disc one, they're intentionally out of tune, you know? So I mean, he was just kind of having a lot of fun with himself, probably more than anybody else and kind of goofing around a little bit and sort of making a statement. And, you know, this is another example that I guess he, he would a few times on this during this recording, he would get in like a plank position, like a push up position to do his vocal tracks just to get like this really authentic kind of like grunt, you know, going on. <laughs> so he just did a lot of weird stuff. And I mean, in the words of Rick James, cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, minute 50, it's just one of those kind of little Lindsay ditties that you get here on Tusk. And I mean, it's, it's just weird and whatever, you know, <laughs> That's, I don't know. <laughs> weird oh, and whatever. Just, yeah. Right. Perfectly summed up. All right. Well, getting back to the personal relationship that I have with Christine McVie, I think she wrote this song about me because I've got brown eyes. I think this song is so delicate and gorgeous. Anything that has Rhodes piano and I just, I'm going to like, there's not a whole lot of songs out there that have that instrument in it that I don't like. There's something just about that warm piano sound that I love. And her vocal is so airy, you know, it's so atmospheric. It makes me want to go riders on the storm. <laughs> right. There's yeah. A bit of, right. <laughs> it's a, a little comment. bit of a ripoff if you really think about it. I mean, it's got yeah, the, a little bit. you know, kind of the, the, the rim clicks with the drumming and on the, with the ride cymbal and then the kind of organ thing going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if you take, if you, if you take McVie's voice off of it, it's maybe a little bit of a riders on the storm rip, but who cares? It's, it's cool. It's cool. I think it's very trippy and cool and, you know, they pull it off. Maybe a little bit of a heat check here. I mean, it's, you know, especially McVie, she's she's feeling it at this point from a composition and, and lead vocal standpoint. And she's just kind of like, you know, caution to the wind on something like this because it's, you know, very um, atmospheric and, and not, you know, her doing her normal cute little groove thing. So I think that's neat. Yeah. Other than I think missing a little fat Morrison swigging on whiskey, you know, lending his... Uh, vocal talents to it if if he couldn't be a part of it which by this point he couldn't because he was dead and stuff uh i think fleetwood mac pulls off uh brown eyes pretty well i like it never saw a woman so alone you think <laughs> right. use some of that yeah exactly exactly cops and cars topless bars that's right i think that by this point in the second half of the album it's clear that tusk just like 
the white album before it and just like melancholy and the infinite sadness after it and so many other double albums before and after is following that playbook of the first side the first half is going to be packed with the commercial potential the hits the obvious songs that people will want to hear if they have short attention spans and the second side is going to be chock full of the sort of more experimental let's try this let's see if this works sort of vibe and if you think about most double albums they really have followed that playbook haven't they yeah i I think so and this is just such a unique statement you know as we talked about a little bit in on disc one and so yeah these these twists and turns that you go through here on the second half are pretty interesting and see one other thing about brown eyes aside from that she's uh singing to to me of course is that song features peter green on guitar former founding member of fleetwood mac ah right which is kind of a cool thing so a little bit of a full circle thing one of the one of the interesting things about tusk when you have a double album and are trying to do so much stuff you can apparently bring back old band members for uh, for random cameo appearances so brown eyes features that as well my girlfriend continues to sing to me with track four and that is was she the only one showing up to work for the second half of the album i mean come on (laughs) that is track four never make me cry very well executed she sings it marvelously it's just not my thing i this is this is the only time where christine's stuff doesn't really connect with me when she gets a little bit melodramatic right it's it's a little too much of the old uh sentimentalness if you will if that's even a word but this song needs a little bit more than it has the repetition and the i'll never make you gets on my nerves too for some reason yeah yeah i'm glad it's short um, and that's not to say that it's bad. It's just kind of, they did a good job on this record of just not being indulgent and not trying to sort of squeeze more out of it than what they had. You know, it's kind of like, if you have a good track, bring it, let's make it efficient. Let's get it to the point And then let's move on to the next and kind of go for volume rather than, um, trying to draw out a lot of sort of single quality out of these as, as they did on rumors and as they did on the, on the debut, you know? So yeah, I, I mean, I like it. I think it's quick and to the point. I think her vocals really, really spectacular. It's one of her best vocals. If, you know, just purely from you want to, you want to get an idea of um, Christine McVie's, you know, sort of vocal approach with some really cool effects over something that's pretty minimalist. This is a good opportunity to do that. All right. Well, side three concludes. With Lindsay back again with I Know I'm Not Wrong. Doesn't he strike you as like a kid with a new toy? With the uh, the keyboards that he was using, yeah, yeah, he's de- he's he's definitely playing. He's playing around, having a good time. 
This one I think works a little bit better than some of the other ones. Maybe it's just the the driving beat of it. You know, we talked about Mick Fleetwood's love of the Tusk album. And rhythmically, it does give some, even though, even though Lindsay was by playing drums on a lot of them, um, it, there are some cool just driving elements. Lindsay is sort of rocking out in a lot of ways compared to what Fleetwood Mac was usually doing. So I don't know. I think I, I know I'm not wrong works as one of his little motifs a little bit better than some of the other ones. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's just, I kind of like this one. Yeah. I think it works. Um, it's got a little bit more punch to it. It's a little bit more interesting than some of the other moments here where you're just kind of like, you almost giggle because like Lindsay's just kind of dicking around, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this one has some actual sort of backbone to it. I think it's pretty good. All right. Not to be confused with uh, the great uh, Honey Eye by George McRae. Which, <laughs> yeah, great know. call. Yeah. Yeah, the honey fantastic eye. song, honey eye. One of the one of the one of the great soul train moments of all time is um, oh. uh, Don Cornelius introduces George McRae's honey eye. George McRae with the honey eye. Yeah, <laughs> but this is not honey eye by George McRae. This is Christy McVie with honey high. I know what I know that what this one kind of makes you think of. You're kind of thinking of like you being home, like screwing around all day, like watching YouTube and just whatever, doing, <laughs> doing, doing all, playing the drums, just doing all your dumb stuff. And then like Christine comes home after like a long day at the studio or like on the road or something. Yeah. And uh, and she comes in just like singing the song to you, you know, as she arrives home that sound about right i really like it i'm gonna probably use that one from now on but mine was more campfire it was like her and i just sitting around like a campfire maybe with a couple kids okay the tent the sleeping bag you know kind of right right near and um and just kind of hanging i don't know where you find a Rhodes piano in the middle of a forest so that might be a factor yeah but just kind of sitting around a campfire jamming roasting marshmallows Oh, you're, yeah. oh, you're playing, you're playing music. You got like an acoustic. Yeah. yeah Are you exactly. accompanying her? On yes, the guitar? I am. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And well, bongos too, because you can hear Well, there's the- like two chords in this song. So, I mean, even you can probably <laughs> figure that out. Yeah. This is far away my second favorite song on the second side. I just think it's so damn charming. I love it. It's hopeful. It's optimistic. It takes some of the, if I call Tusk a dark album, I don't know if I'd say that, but it, it definitely takes some of the edgier moments and transforms it into this lovely song. And I just, I think Campfire, man. That's what I think about. Yeah, that, that works too. That works too. Do you like Honey High? Yeah. I think it's snappy. I think it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. All right. There's not much to it. You know, no, 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 that's, that's what I like about it. It's very, yeah. Simple. Very, yeah. very simple. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. All right, looking forward to getting old Team Stevie's thoughts on this one. Are you mad I didn't like it more? Or <laughs> no, 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 no. I was <laughs> trying to gauge for like where you're really at because you're just kind of like, yeah, it's okay. Oh, well, I mean, it, yeah, it's just. I think of- that song is absolutely like just heartwarming. You know, yeah. I, I yeah, I'm more emotionally attached to it than you are clearly. Yeah, 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's see if you're emotionally attached to uh, the track seven on this second half, which is Beautiful Child. Team Stevie, what do you think of Beautiful Child? Pretty good, pretty intense, pretty, yeah, got a lot of feeling to it, a lot of nice mood. I like the dragginess of it. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's kind of nice when Stevie has a little fun. Obviously, in this one, she's not. It's very, um, it's not dark, but it's, you know, definitely has a bit more of a melancholy kind of atmosphere to it. But, it's a very, very good vocal. I like the simplicity of the drums. I like how it kind of marches along and isn't trying to do too much and just creates a lot of space for her vocally, you know? And I think they were always pretty smart about that, particularly Mick in really allowing space for these vocalists, which all had their moments of excellence. I think this is a very good moment for Stevie. It's probably a little too long, which a couple of Stevie's tracks on this entire record are. You know, hey, better, better a long song, a too long song from Stevie Nicks than no Stevie Nicks song at all. So there you go. All right. Tell us why you don't like it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of boring. Yeah. I like that you identified some intensity and I do appreciate that. I still think it really goes anywhere. I, I can tolerate Christine's. See, it's funny. This is so, it's just so much bias. When Christine goes minimal, it's like, oh, atmosphere and space. <laughs> and cool. And when yeah. Stevie does, I'm like, that's boring. You know? Boring. It's yeah. Like right. A double standard, right? <laughs> At least you admit it. It's fine. Completely. All right. We're nearing the end. Lindsay's back and he's not walking on a thin line like Huey Lewis was, but he brings walk a thin line. So as nothing a drummer, like, nothing like double tracking drums when you're not that good. And it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> totally. I don't know. What, what was that? You know, one of the most agonizing things about being a drummer is that everyone thinks they're a drummer Oh yeah. and people, there's always that guy, whenever there's a set of drums who like just goes and sits behind the drums and just hacks out some awful, like, you know, and they make like a weird face while they do it. And, it's just like, yeah, everyone thinks they're a drummer. And uh, yeah. clearly Lindsay does too. You know, I think that probably it's, it feels to me to like the bass drum track is Mick because it does have that signature Mick kind of rolling uh, feel going on. And then I think Lindsay stepped in and did some of those atrocious and ridiculous fills. That's what it feels like. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Could be anything. It could be. It could be Lindsay's three-year-old on the drums. I, I, who knows? It's, it's, it's again, it's just kind of weird. And, you know, um, it does sound like Mick's playing one of those just in terms of tone and fill. It kind of sounds like him ish, but 
Yeah. Who knows, man? <laughs> it's kind of that there's that one fill. It's like it was almost like a mistake, like an overdubbing mistake, and then he just left it in, which is probably exactly what it is, you know. Just didn't care, you know. So when we if we have like a core instrument, when we pick up that instrument or sit down at that instrument, we're creatures of habit and we're we're artistic people. We always do the same thing the very first time, right? Like when you pick up your yeah. guitar. There's just a go-to riff that you play and you're testing out your hands. You're testing yep. out your tone. You're testing out your tuning, all that kind of stuff. So when I sit by a drum kit, I've done the same exact thing, you know, f- for 20 years. Fleetwood Mac is no different from us in that way, but their thing that they would do when they all got together and started testing out their instruments went a little something like, and that was Lindsay. He'd start playing that. It was just his thing. He'd pick up his guitar and there's just this thing. And then they jam off of it and they would do this at sound checks and they would do this at rehearsals and things like that. And before you knew it, became a song, but I'm sure they didn't imagine the marching band when they were first testing this out. And all of this, the jam and the little routine and the little kind of riff and the extension of that riff all became the magnificent title track on Tusk. the whole tusk thing came from there was like a like an elephant head or like tusks up in the studio that they were working on there was like an actual set of tusks and it apparently became like a symbol for them it was like their mascot of the recording and so they were putting the song together and then they would all just like be just like tusk you know so it, it the whole thing came out of this very organic kind of fun loving humorous thing But I got to tell you, T, that riff to me is just a monster. I think that riff could be sampled and used in a lot of different ways. The song really gets maximized on the dance, the live version where they bring the USC marching band into the theater and they're playing in the aisles and stuff. I mean, it's a massive song. Have you ever gone back and watched the the promotional video for it when they're in Dodger Stadium? Uh. No, like like around this time when they made the record, you mean? Yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh-uh. It, it's it's kind of hilarious. Steve or uh, Lindsay's got his short hair. John McVie apparently was on vacation overseas, and so there's a they have a cardboard cutout of John McVie that they're carrying <laughs> around, and um, they're basically watching the marching band record their track for the song. And I think bringing in the marching band was really brilliant. I, I don't know exactly whose idea it was. I'm sure it was Lindsay's, but. What a really cool idea. And it just, oh, the Southern Cal marching band, actually, that's them on the recording? Yes. Yeah. Oh. And they recorded it in Dodger Stadium. And that's what the video footage of that became the official oh. promotional video for Tusk, the song. Okay, cool. Cool. The drumming, I think, is really cool. Again, there's just all the, like all of a sudden Fleetwood Mac has become like a hip hop group. There's this, this, this groove and this kind of you know, this real nod your head rhythm to this thing. I just love it. I like the way the vocal melody came about. The verses are a little goofy, 
But once it opens up and really finds its stride, I think Tusk is is a real pinnacle for the band's career. Yeah, these are the type of songs that the, these festival rock acts of today uh, would perform if they had talent. You know, because <laughs> right. it, that's a good it, call. Yeah, yeah, it is a pretty dynamic song in terms of the beat, in terms of the kind of like repetition and the build of it. And, you know, you've got now you've got horns and kind of a full marching band ensemble kind of thing. So, you know, it's a song with a lot of dynamics and a lot of layers, but it's all done with uh, not only a very talented, you know, rock and roll group, but a very talented, you know, marching band piece behind it. And uh, now, you know, you can make a song like this and the drums would be electronic and the horns would be fake and the keyboards would be all sort of, you know, synthesized out and processed and you know so it's kind of a um it's a neat song it's pretty simple you know there's not a lot to it it's not like it's a difficult progression but you know yeah it's one that works i don't know why they didn't close the record with this i kind of feel like they should have but yeah i mean it's pretty iconic it was very cool the way they recreated it and brought the band out when they did the dance just yet another cool moment during that performance one of one of very many it's a bit of a marathon to get you here, you know, to track 19. Um, but I think there's a payoff to it. And I think that there's a, there's an appreciation once you get to it and uh, kind of wish it ended here, but you know, it's cool uh, to have uh, help take you to the end of this journey for sure. As we already pointed out, sequencing is probably not this band's forte. You know, rumors is just ridiculously sequenced. So yeah. maybe not their forte, but, I like the the uh, perspective on the payoff. I do think the studio version doesn't really capture its power. And and again, you don't know really what was being recorded. Where was some of this done in Lindsay's home studio, which clearly was going for a more thin sound. Even with the marching band, I still don't think it captures the full power of the song until you get to the live versions and certainly the one on the dance. And I agree that I think it should have closed, but it is interesting that they chose not to interesting artistic and sequential decision. And instead of closing with Tusk, they closed with one more Christine track. And that is never forget. I'll never forget you, Christine. Never. <laughs> that's like how it, it ends. I like it. And that's and that is what brings Tusk to an end. More another campfire song, in my opinion, T. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I just think this could have been 19 and Tusk could have been 20. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get I just don't get that. So what are you gonna do? You know, it's it's kind of just a weird, just a weird call, but it's a weird album. So you know, <laughs> I guess to it kind of had it, to be that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, to end it the way people would have expected it to end, and in in most cases, probably would have preferred it to end is not what was to be on this one. So, you know, in that way, I guess it's fitting. Well, the four million selling commercial failure is now to a close. He was so much fun to go through the whole thing. So it, it's it's massive. It's very thorough, but the question now is, does it hold up? And see how for you, how does Tusk hold up? Um, 
you know, I think it's uh, sort of the white album of the late 70s, not so much in its critical or commercial appeal, but the fact that they clearly took a calculated approach of shorter tracks, um, with the exception of Stevie's stuff. Uh, and, you know, let's go with volume rather than, you know, quality necessarily. It was definitely more of sort of a quantity game and let's flex on some variety. Let's have a little bit of car blanche here. Let's get out of the box that we've been trapped in for the last two albums and let's put out something that is in no way intended to be commercial, particularly from Lindsay's vantage point. So in that way, it was ambitious, you know, it was ballsy. It was cocky. Um, it was a middle finger to the sort of commercial advice they were getting. I'm sure from Warner brothers and from this sort of empire that, that, um, Fleetwood Mac had become at that point, because this was a full-scale business operation at this point, right? In terms of touring and being in stadiums and arenas and flying around on the Fleetwood Mac jet and the number of uh, records being sold. I mean, this was kind of a machine. And it almost felt like the band felt like the machine was getting so out of hand that the one thing they could control was their creative output. And they decided to take full control of that, particularly Lindsey Buckingham. And, and there's something neat about that. So creatively, I think it's a very important record in that it signaled a band sort of putting their creative foot down in a way and saying, you know, we're not going to be cookie cutter and just, you know, put something out there uh, for just pure commercial appeal. Because I think they could have done that as long as they wanted. I mean, this band was good enough. They were skilled enough and they all had collectively, both individually and as a group, enough uh, composition and performing talent to where these guys could have put out, you know, probably a few more classic records, um, but sort of chose to mix things up and chose to kind of go their own way, if you will, no pun intended, and and do it the way they they wanted to. And, and Tusk is kind of the ultimate example of that. So it was a little bit of a sort of modern, uh, like almost like their answer to the White Album in a way, uh, creatively. And you put it kind of in its proper context and you try your best to understand how massive this band was at this time and how how much creative risk and and how much creative boldness it took for them to go in this direction you know for this double lp so and when you consider all those things i think it's pretty unique and pretty damn cool so if you put a little context around it i do think it's pretty important i think it holds up pretty well so what do you think buddy i think it's just so important to recognize the legacy of the double album what it meant at the time particularly in the years of vinyl in the 70s in early 80s, we mentioned Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which is probably the most famous double album of the 90s. And that was so intentionally a double album. And I see a lot of similarities between where Smashing Pumpkins was at at that time and where Fleetwood Mac was. And I think they're very similar albums in a way. I know you you like the, the White Album comparison. I like it too. But I got to tell you, man, I just love the whole double album era. Yeah. When you talk about Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Physical Graffiti, The Wall, you know, these were daring 
networks that needed two records to achieve artistically and musically the things that they wanted to achieve. And that is so ambitious. It's gone from today's music because, (laughs) you know, in digital formats, you can make albums as long as you want. And even in the CD era, it it came along and kind of destroyed the double album as a, as a unique novelty kind of thing. And I just love double albums. I love exploring them. I think the artwork was always really important. I think Tusk is no different. You know, you'd open up that gatefold sleeve and, and just have this sort of wondrous experience into all this music. And so I, I just love what it represents as one of the core double albums in music history, but maybe the most underappreciated. The ones that I just named are classic, beloved, heralded works. Tusk is not, but it should be. It should be. You know, I think hindsight's been good to it. That's one of the reasons I think it holds up really well. You know, there's now books that have been written about, or at least a book that's been written about Tusk. And uh, there should be. It's a hell of a story. It's intriguing. It's fascinating. And it's really captivating. And I love it. It was fun, T. What a great choice. I started off the first episode by praising you for your uh, creativity and the choice. And I want to conclude by doing the same thing. So good choice, T. It's been so much fun to go through it. Thank you, buddy. It was nice work on disc two and, you know, the moment of truth here, right? That's right. That's right. So T, the final cut is Tusk on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it headed to the for sale? bin? remember it sold 4 million copies. I bet, I bet this was a, a for sale bin regular at used record shops. <laughs> um, I have purchased Tusk w- within the last month, you know, so in what in format? That, on vinyl. On oh, silver, cool. silver vinyl. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. So, I mean, you have to put it in the collection. And I'm going to bump it up to on the turntable because disc one is just outstanding. Now, disc two is okay. Chugs along. Tusk kind of wraps it up. There's definitely some good moments we went through, but. You know, they, they, it has a little bit of double album disease in that it probably could have been condensed down to a 12 track, just spectacular record and you know, take a couple of Lindsay's ditties out of there and, you know, expand upon a couple of ideas that were there that were a little bit incomplete, but as a whole, you know, you still have to, I mean, I think you make a great point on the double album and it's a special one and a unique one. And, you know, a lot of Fleetwood Mac fans are going to pop in the green greatest hits record. And that's fine. There's a lot of good stuff on there or the double best of, which is great. I I discovered a lot of more unheralded tracks from the band through that. And everybody knows rumors and most people know the debut, but to really dig into Tusk and really understand what they were doing, why they were doing it. And while not every track is, you know, a winner collectively, I think it was a really important moment for this band and a really important signal. We're all about the signal, not the noise here, right? And I've been a really important signal that ultimately you earn creative control. And this band earned creative control about as effectively as any band after two records. And the question becomes, do you take advantage of that and try to develop some longevity and try to produce something that you enjoyed doing? Or do you just kind of go through the motions and cookie cutter your way into a, another platinum album? I think it's important in music history that not only did these guys go 
in the direction of full creative control, but they did it in a unique way on a double album that could be argued was a little bit unnecessary, but very intentional, very calculated, and I think sent an important message at a time from a very important band that they weren't about to be strong-armed by management or record label or whatever it is. And I think if you listen to it through that lens, in the context of the time period that it came and where the industry was headed and where the record companies were headed and the biggest band in the world doing something like this, I just think it's extraordinarily cool. And it's a great listen. So I'm going to go on the turntable, buddy. What do you got? So you, you fell into the Fleetwood Mac trap by debut. You, of course, mean their 10th album, right? Yeah, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone does that. Exactly. Like, the first Fleetwood Mac. Oh, you Self, mean Peter Self titled debut. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> I love it. I've got it on the turntable as well. Uh, mostly because to me, a double album is a journey. And you start that journey from the top and you don't quit until you're done with it. That should be true with all albums, right? But let's not kid ourselves. Most people like to pick and choose their spots, particularly nowadays, as we sort of sadly get out of the album era into something much more selective and much more have it your way. But a double album really is meant to take the journey. It's meant to drop the needle and listen to all four sides of it and be intrigued by what you hear. Yes, there's some clear commercial potential. There were songs on this uh, record that should have been bigger hits. They were so commercial. But it's it's the quest. It's the 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 discovery and the intrigue behind the artistic statement that was being made. So I'm with you, T. I have it on the turntable. First time in a while we've both had something on the turntable, I think. Yeah, I think it is. A good, good call. Yeah, we are on the same page. What do you know? Most certainly. Most certainly. All right, T. Well, let's close up shop with someone who didn't make a double album. And that's Dolores. <laughs> and uh, let's figure out what is that in your head. All right, T. Oh, go to Lars. All right, T. Three, uh, <laughs> three songs that don't go like. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. As if a double album wasn't long enough. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. What do you got? Okay, the first is a song that you and I jammed out to during a during a little road trip recently, and that is the great Steve Vai with Devin Townsend on the vocals doing a little In My Dreams With You off Sex and Religion. What a track. What a freaking track. Uh, the second, man, been listening to just so much fish since the show we went. Just so much fish. Just fish everywhere. And a live one. I know we've talked about it, but like one of the best live albums ever is Fish is a live one. Hands down. Hands down. The, the, the live production is, is wonderful, and that's a tough band to produce. The performances are amazing. There's a couple just fish classics on that, you know, just fan favorite classic performances. And anyway, aside from a live one, I've I've been uh, digging into Divided Sky. It's another one of their kind of epic pieces. Uh, the third is from another band uh, on a uh, same venue, actually seen this past summer. That was Tears for Fears. This is off their new album, a great song they did live called the Rivers of Mercy. I think it's one of the best songs on that new record. So that is what is in my head. What is in your head, Buckaroo? Another band with new music of late, and that is Umphreys McGee. I, I dug into Bridgeless, the studio version, a little bit. What a great epic mm-hmm. song. Good Jake Sininger stuff there, for I'm sure. I'm going to see them in a couple weeks. Where at? In uh, California. Oh, I was going to say, they're not, not going to be anywhere around here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Second is a uh, 
song that features Adrian Ballou in one of his most, I don't know, unlikely guest appearances. And that is the song Liquid by Jars of Clay, the opener off that just smokingly popular self-titled Jars of Clay album. Yeah. Liquid. Love that song. Oh, what a track. Yeah, it's really good. What a track. And then lastly is a song that I've been listening to all summer a lot. One of the most, I would say, honestly, dude, one of the most underrated songs of the 1970s. And that is Jefferson Starship's Jane. Oh, I've really gotten into that and looked up some kind of old clips of them playing it live. Mickey Thomas. I mean, this is early, you know, kind of his early days in the band and his voice is just, oh my God, could that guy sing? And Jane is such an awesome song. It To me, it should have been even bigger than it was. And it was a pretty big hit, but I love Jane. Love it. Okay. Can we go with songs that have the word Jane in it? Um, Jane that you just mentioned. Uh, Goodbye to Jane by Slade. Jane Says. Jane Says. Jane's Addiction. Janie's Got a Gun. Does that count? That definitely counts. We're going to count it. Um, What's that 80s? Wasn't there an 80s song? The Ballad of what what? What Happened to Jane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What song is that? I don't know. You'll have to look it up. I don't know that one. That's a good call. And it all seems fine. What a shame. What happened to Jane? Oh, it's um it's LA Guns, the ballad of Jane. Oh yeah, yeah. LA Guns. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good song, actually. But you're right, there's a lot of Jane songs. Yeah. But none better than Jefferson Starship's Jane. Just one of the best piano, you know, it's just, it's so good. I love it. Yeah. Lady Jane by the uh, Rolling Stones. Yeah. The Diary of Jane by Breaking Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that I should have thought of that one. Hey Jane by Spiritualized. Okay. Okay. Now I'm looking shit. Now you're looking up. Yeah, Yeah, I am. But you know. Well, you should, right when we sign off here, you should listen to Jane by Jefferson Starship. It's just such a jam. So I will. I will. All right, T. It was epic, buddy. And uh, we cannot wait to see everyone again soon. We've got a couple specialty shows headed your way that we're really excited about. Mm-hmm. Going to talk a little bit about what I would say is a very controversial list that was put out recently that T and I are going to go through and explore. So we will do that on an episode coming very soon. Until we get to that, you can check us out, of course, on all of our social media outlets. Like us, comment us, do all those things that you're supposed to do to make us feel really, really good about ourselves because <laughs> we need that, don't we, T? Yeah, we do. We have low self esteem so please help us. <laughs> exactly. And above all, and more important than anything else, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you again soon for the next episode of Two Twins and an Album. Two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.